Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is author and teacher, Chris Harding Thornton. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Chris Harding Thornton, a seventh-generation Nebraskan, holds an MFA from the University of Washington and a PhD from the University of Nebraska, where she has taught literature and writing courses. She has also worked as a quality assurance overseer at a condom factory, a jar-lid screwer at a plastics plant, a closer at Burger King, a record store clerk, an all-ages club manager, and a PR writer. Pickard County Atlas is her first novel. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm going to tell you that I loved reading Pickard County Atlas, and I'm really excited to talk about that with you. But I I want to start a little bit at the beginning. So would you share a little bit about your childhood? Sure. Uh, I was born in 73, and I the first place that I remember living in was our my parents trailer which was a double wide actually uh and it was located in a trailer court that is it was right outside of irvington it's still there um there wasn't anything really between there and irvington yet that which was a proper town it still is in an un, unincorporated community uh and that's where i went to grade school uh i lived with my parents until i was seven uh the grade school closed my parents split up and i moved in with my grandparents who lived about a mile and a half outside of bennington nebraska which again was really far out from omaha at the time it was a half hour drive or something And then when I lived with my grandparents, I also lived with um, some aunts and uncles. So they were kind of my, they were kind of like brothers and sisters to me, which was really great. And then I, I moved a lot. I I moved again in fifth grade back to Omaha. And then I moved in sixth grade back to Bennington. Um, And then I moved when I was 14 back in with my mother and her second husband. Uh, I lived there until I was 17 and graduated. And then I went to school for a very brief period, (laughs) a quarter. (laughs) In your early life, what do you remember about reading and books and literature and writing and, and anything that spurred that sort of creative part of you? I was taught to read it if there's a unhealthy age to teach a child to read at, I, I think I was probably taught a little too young to read, uh, but I'm grateful. Uh, my mother taught me to read. I, I believe I could read by the time I went to kindergarten. Um, and so I, I don't remember, you know, I had golden books back then, you know, I had those, 
But when I moved in with my grandparents, there was all the high school leftovers from my aunts and uncles. So I remember reading Grapes of Wrath for a fourth grade book report. And <laughs> and the teacher was like, what do you make of the point of view in here where it tells the story of this individual family and then it tells the, the the larger history of what was going on. And I said, well, I think that's supposed to show that that family was just going through something that a whole lot of other people were going through or something along those lines. And then they bumped me up a grade in reading and writing. <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and then I, and I read Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice way too young and did not get it. I was like, this is just boring. Nothing happens until the last 75 pages. Um, but you know, it, it, I was a kid, so it, I love Jane Austen now, but yeah. So it, that speaks a little bit to a degree of, uh, dare I say, innate talent and innate interest in books and literature and what they could mean. Is that something that you became aware of at some point as in a, a sort of self-awareness that this was interesting to you or did it just kind of pass you by? It just seemed to be reading just seemed to be a natural part of life. Yeah. Reading and writing both were just a natural part of life. And I didn't realize that I was, I was really writing until I was about 23. I had all these notebooks uh, on my table and I had a job where I made $8 an hour and felt very glad about that at the time. Um, but I was sort of like, do I want to do something else? And it, it had never occurred to me to, to write. And I, I just fell into it at that point. And I decided, well, what happened really was that I realized that I had only committed to never committing to anything. <laughs> uh, so I finally just went in and I just didn't look back. I just, I would, I took a creative writing class at university of Nebraska at Omaha and just to feel it out to see if anyone thought I could do it. And someone was very encouraging and that was that. And I just didn't look back really. Uh, but then of course, though, I've moved around, I've moved, I have had more places, more addresses probably than, uh, years in my life. <laughs> so I moved to California for a while. I took some more like core requirement classes through the community colleges in, in California and then ended up moving back to Omaha in 2002 and re-enrolled at University of Nebraska at Omaha in the BFA creative writing program that they have there, which is great. And then I moved again. When I finished that, I moved to Seattle to uh, get my MFA. And then I came back to UNL at the end of my MFA, mostly out of panic because I didn't have a book. So I couldn't get a teaching job. And then I, I didn't realize, like, well, what happened really was the the university was as a whole, all universities were undergoing that change away from, you know, hiring people uh, full-time to just hiring adjuncts. So uh, I have been stringing along uh, living with that for a while now. Um, just, you know, getting by, can't complain. Could, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask, why is Pickett County Atlas your first novel? That's a great question. 
I really, I, I, I have no idea. Um, I wrote another book prior to this book that was nonfiction, but it, I don't like writing nonfiction very much. I'm not, I'm just not comfortable with it. I guess I'm not comfortable with the sound of my own voice. Uh, so Pickard County Atlas, it kind of picked me. I heard the voice of one of the characters one day and I just wrote down what the character said. It ended up being chapter 11 of the book uh, years and years later. You know, I took breaks from it and I could only really write uh, when I had vacation time and things like that. So I should also say uh, a big a big impact on reading for me <laughs> came by way of I had 11 grandparents, living grandparents when I was born. I had um, the four customary and then I had six great grandparents and one great great grandmother and one of my great grandmothers was very 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 religious uh very 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 religious uh read the bible every single day and would read these passages aloud and would compare and contrast well if this is true how can this be true so I learned textu textual analysis when I was five to seven, really. So that's been something that I think has had a huge impact on me. So you live in the dream You should see it through someone else's side Another cipher to break While the grass grows underneath my feet Obviously, I would encourage people to go to Dundee Book Co and buy the book so they can learn all about this for themselves. Get a signed copy because there are signed copies there. So there's some joy. But other than reading the book for themselves, I should invite you to just give the synopsis of what the book is. Plot-wise, uh, what happens is 18 years after a boy was killed by a veteran of the Korean War who had um, who had some PTSD. 18 years after he is killed and his body never recovered, the father of the family decides to plant a headstone and that sends everyone's lives into complete chaos, really. Uh, it's a slow burning chaos, but once it goes off the rails, it really it really careens, I think. <laughs> as far as what it's about, I mean, it, I think it's about a, so many things for me. I, each character has 
has different threads of themes. I think a big one is whether or not we have free will, uh, just like Shakespeare, I'm pretty obsessed with the idea of whether or not we really have free will or whether it just, we have this necessary appearance of it. And I, I kind of tend to think that we just have the illusion of free will um, and that that probably keeps us in, in check at times. Uh, so that, that, that was a huge facet for me, but also I think dealing with trauma and what happens when you don't deal with trauma. Um, I also think, I, I think the book's really funny. Can I say that? Yeah. I think it's really a funny book. I, the end is not funny. I mean, the end, the end is a little dark maybe, but, uh, I also see a lot of people talk about how dark the ending and how, how bleak the ending is. But to me, there's redemption. I think the characters have a moment of redemption. And I think it's funny. I think it, a lot of it is pretty funny. So the book, uh, I'm going to give you a, just a spontaneous reader reaction. Page turner is a cliche, but it, it, it had me turning the pages. It had me sitting up and reading it into you know, the, the, the dark hours. Um, and it's in its own way, it's a dark book, but not necessarily oppressive. For me, words like taut and tense and spare all come to mind. There aren't that many characters in it, but they're rich and they really pull you in and they're complicated too. And I kind of didn't necessarily like any of them, but I also was rooting <laughs> for all of them. There seems to be this a little bit of a, a focus more towards this idea of what rural life is and is at the heart of what it means to be you know, American, but also in some ways, not a glorification or a eulogizing of rural poverty, but an attempt to kind of place it in context. And your book doesn't do that at all. And I'm wondering if you were aware of that and if, if, if there was any sort of intention in your writing about what kind of picture of rural Midwest life did you want to paint with this book? Well, I think the, the characters, as you mentioned, I think that they're not entirely likable, but I, I don't, they're all pretty complex people. To me, they're, they're fairly realistic people. I think as far as the Midwest, I did draw a lot on memory and my own personal experiences um, in the book, certainly. It's been fun uh, to, in a terrible way to have my parents read the book. And my dad has the job that um, Rick has and works with his brother. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's eerie, you know, but at the same time, my dad does not have that voice. And my dad is not that person. And when my dad read the book, he was like, yeah, I this is it's complete fiction it's total fiction and these people are made up he said the one person that he could kind of identify and may have a guess as to who it might be was paul um who not a lot of reviewers have been talking about but to me is the heart of the book um i don't know if i'm doing a good job of answering your question uh about the midwest to me that part i don't think that i write I don't think that language is capable of, of capturing real life. I don't think language is capable of, I don't think narrative is, is capable of capturing reality. Uh, it inherently becomes a fiction as soon as you put it into words, because words are just abstract symbols that are arbitrary. 
but you try, you try to get as specific and as close as you can get, or I try to get as specific and close as I can get to what I feel is real, which is that people are wonderful and they're garbage and, uh, poverty is not a good time. Uh, I have experienced it. It is not fun. Everything is a hassle. I don't think people understand exactly how exhausting poverty is, um, that you could conceivably end up in jail because of a pothole, because let's say <laughs> you need your car in a rural area to get to work. You are driving one day. You don't have much money as it is. You hit a pothole. You bend the rim of your car. And uh, that's not inexpensive to fix. Even if you go to a U-pull-it, uh, you have to get it fixed, so you have to pay for that, and then you can't pay for the insurance, and then you get pulled over, and you have no insurance if they don't impound your car, which good luck getting it out. Um, you will get a bench warrant, potentially. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it it's just constantly having to, like, make choices, like, do I get food or do I get this? It's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So, yeah, I definitely, I didn't. I, I've been waiting for someone to say, because inevitably I feel like someone is going to say that it's 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 sort of like poverty porn or something. But to me, that's just real life. That's just how most people live. Take me back, take me back to the old dirt road where mama and papa used to go. Let's sing all them songs from a long time ago And pine for them old days of yore Well, let me run through the breeze like the leaves on the trees Let me fly like the leaves when they fall That runs from the mountain so tall Oh, take me back down the old dirt road Poverty porn sort of suggests this idea that we enjoy the act of being voyeurs upon this, you know, rural poverty tableau. And I didn't. That's not the feeling I had. Um, it felt honest and unpleasant, but it didn't make me not want to read it. It made me want to engage with it. Uh, whereas if it had been poverty porn, I think it would have been somewhat off-putting. I'm in a generation where probably none of us are going to be able to retire ever. Uh, and But I also come from people who my, my dad is probably never going to retire, you know, he, he just, it's not, it's not financially feasible. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I appreciate that it feels honest. I, I think that all of that definitely came from honest experience, you know. It reminds me of a scene fairly early in the book when um, Rick Reddick, one of these trailer repairers and his wife Pam are having a discussion and Pam is pushing him to make sure he gets gas money from his father before they go to this site. And we're talking about gas money. 
because it's Nebraska, you have to travel, you know, many miles to get to these other small towns. But getting the gas money in advance was possibly make or break to their, you know, weekly finances. My father does love his work in the in the way that he is self-employed and he's at a different place every couple of days or every week. He likes actually working with his hands. I do too. It's not all grim and terrible, you know, it's we have happiness as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it is exhausting. Yeah. And gas money can make the difference. Yeah. My mother, I, I remember her telling me at a point in, in my life, at some point she said that she get really tired of having to like put back the butter at the store because there just wasn't enough money for butter. Uh, the only time that she ever considered stealing something it was a pair of shoes for me <laughs> um so that that was hard and i think it took a toll on on them i think it, it takes it took a toll on them and i think it takes a toll on these characters in the book and i have to say again uh for my mother's sake no she's not pam <laughs> because she read the book and her take was immediately like you like your dad better than me <laughs> it's like no that's preposterous. You're not in the book. I, I can't imagine the experience that you have. But that's also why I write is to try to understand why people do the things that they do. Um, I can't like it as that comes up in the book. I only have my own frame of reference. I can only imagine what other people are doing. But I, to me, that's what a fiction writer does. That's why you do it is you try to empathize as closely as you possibly can with other people. I think that we need that. I, I think we should talk about the characters then. And I like how you set the characters up in this construct where there's there's a mystery that gets solved with a sort of a, you know a provocative denouement at the end of the book. But the structure of the book itself is almost Shakespearean in in this comedy of errors. So who did what to whom is is totally fumbled by them all, but with tragic consequences. You just last mentioned Pam, so I'll start with Pam. I just want to blurt out this stereotype that Pam is a terrible mother. She leaves her daughter in a store intentionally and is ready to drive away. And several times she gets in her car with the little money they have with an intention of driving away. And, and she's wonderful at the same time, right? <laughs> so what was in your mind as you created her? Pam was the first character that I came up with. She's... Chapter 11 was the first, and that's a, it's a, a chapter in Pam's, um, not really in her point of view, but it's because it's all third person, limited and omniscient. But uh, I just heard it and wrote it, and I can't really totally take credit for Pam. It was like, it was more like Pam was like a faucet that I couldn't turn off. Once she started going, she just wrote herself. At a point when I write, I try to figure out what's going on here, what's organic to have happen for one, like what would this, I believe that people act organically according to who they are in any given moment, um, which is why life is so difficult and hard to understand and why people are so difficult and hard to understand. Uh, but I look at that and then I also looked at like, well, what has to happen here? 
to me, Pam is not a, a, a bad mother. I think that she's a person who shouldn't have been a mother who recognizes that finally. And I think that when she, you know, tries to leave Anna in the store, I think that the, she, I mean, her first thought when she's in her car and she's pulling away is that she will call, you know, her own mother and father and let them know where, you know, she is so that she does care about the safety and the well-being and the stability, stability of her child's life. It's just she also ha- doesn't have the financial resources or really the internal resources to to be a mother. Pam's mother too, a really hard, tough woman who's very self-assured and confident and has probably seen much of life. But I also get the sense in some ways, she, for me, became something of a stand-in for the, re- you know, the, the reproaching attitude of society at large, babe judging Pam's every step and often finding it wanting. Definitely. She definitely does. Uh, babe is probably the most one of the the most real to me characters in the book i think because i grew up in a really matriarchal family where you know the man works and you know makes money um obviously we're talking about you know heteronuclear families here but you know he works uh she pays all the bills she controls the money and she also um grows food for them she you know, and I, I was very much brought up with the same notions, I think, that Babe conveys, which is, you know, you're here, buck up. Uh, <laughs> you made your bed, lie in it. Um, expect the worst and maybe something nice will happen. These are like the things that were definitely indoctrinated into me uh, that I have to kind of undo often in my head. <laughs> Uh, Paul Reddick, he somewhat comes across as um, oh the the perpetual low level criminal with a certain disregard for responsibility and right living. In the book, you say Paul knew when misery was stretched, taught as it got, and sensed just when to pluck it. And I just so like that description of Paul, and yet. He actually seems to be deeply loyal to his to his family, to his father, to his brother. Um, his mother has wandered off somewhere, and people don't seem to know where. But Paul, you kind of think he does know, and he knows that actually this is what she needs, and he's going to let her do it, but keep an eye on things. I think it takes time, but you get to understand that Paul is deeply caring about his family, but you'd never know it. No, and I'm so so relieved honestly to hear to hear your take on that because to me paul loves his family as deeply as he can i think his his dad he's some somewhat he's a little skeptical of but i think that yeah he i think he you, you said it best he he's fiercely loyal he has a moral compass but it's you brought up shakespearean and a lot of shakespeare definitely had an influence on the book uh and iago was a character that i have always been a little bit fascinated with mostly i'm fascinated with the way that people reacted to iago um 
you know, uh, Coleridge's famous declaration among many horrible declarations that Coleridge made uh, was that, you know, it's the motiveless malignancy, you know, like, of course, Iago had motives. I, I just, it, it seems very apparent to me. Uh, and anyway, he, when I was finally figuring out like the plot of the book, the people that I couldn't nail down the easiest were the ones who were the key to the story, which is Paul and his mother. And once I understood Paul and his mother, um, that, that everything came together at that point. Harley Jensen, the deputy sheriff. At first, I thought he was going to be the the hero of the book, and then it really I started to feel as if he he was needed in order for Paul and his brother and Pam to to be able to have something against which they could appear more um, more contoured and textured. And Harley's a really important character, and he's has all of his own challenges in the book that come out. But I'm struggling to see, for example, Paul being quite as large and robust a character without having Harley as well to be someone to play off of. I think they mirror each other. I think that um, both of them grew up in a state of aftermath. And as Harley points out, the primary difference between Paul and, and Harley is that is that Harley can remember a time when things were normal, uh, seemingly, uh, whereas Paul grew up in just complete aftermath. I think that the reason that Harley is so is so nailed down is because he is he has this this trauma that he's just stuffed in a box. He's just swallowed it up. And then Pam, I think, has this just daily struggle. And she's unable to swallow that and she doesn't want to anymore. And she can't, you know, she just can't. And Rick, I think is pathologically attached to family because of the loss of his older brother. Uh, he was the child who was killed 18 years prior. Um, and his family fell apart when that happened. And I think that he, for that reason, it, 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 he has to have his family like that's the one thing that he needs um but paul like i said to me is the 
kind of the heart and soul of the entire thing. He's also not mentioned very much. I've noticed in the few reviews that I did read, because, you know, they tell you stop, don't, don't read your reviews. And that's a really, that's really good advice to not read your reviews. (laughs) Uh, But I was shocked by the amount of times that Paul's name did not come up. And he's the person making all, he's, he's the chess player. He's, everyone else is a pawn, I think. I look at some of my family members and I see them in Paul. <laughs> and maybe that's part of it. Um, maybe the reviewers are latching on to those characters that seem to be the most appealing to them. I think that that's probably the case. It's always fun to ask people, like, who do you think the main character is when we have these revolving, these three revolving characters? And a lot of people will say Harley uh, because I think he, he starts the book. Some other people will say Pam uh, is is the heart and soul of the book. And I've had a few people who, who think Rick uh, is the heart and soul of the book. My editor let her mom read the book. And her mom is, I guess, just a a really, really harsh critic sometimes. (laughs) She enjoyed it, and I was grateful. And she said her favorite characters were Anna, and then Rick, and then Paul. So, yeah, I think it just depends on the reader. You mentioned free will as a theme. So many of the characters are just closed in by what seems to be what fate has dealt them Pam seems to be the one that is perpetually fighting against that. And the metaphor for that is her fairly um, frequent attempt to drive out of town, to leave it all behind. Is Pam part of you know, that core uh, attempt to address free will as a thing? I think she probably is. At the same time, I, I don't think she has any alternatives but to do what she winds up doing. I think that she's as much a, a product of, of circumstance and a victim of circumstance as, as everyone else is in the book. You said something earlier about your own experiences that you moved around a lot. In some ways, I'm thinking about the idea of rootedness, whether you know trailers become a metaphor for rootedness or, or not rooted, I don't know. Um, but also these, these characters are, are in rural Nebraska there feels to me to be a strong expression of place or a sense of place. And I wonder the degree to which you were, again, intentionally trying to address this sense of you know, location, rootedness, feeling of a place. Yeah, I think I've always, I think I, I, because I was not very rooted myself, I think I probably have always tried very hard to to put down roots i guess uh and i think that it's like you spend i i know i know that some people have gone through this where if you live in a rural area or if you live in a small town and you know you're itching to get out at a point not everyone is like that it's, that's really an overplayed thing and over it, people see it where it doesn't exist but for me I had wanted to leave. My first words actually were, because I didn't have a first word, I had a first phrase, and it was go by, which meant let's leave. (laughs) Uh, 
So I'm, I'm certain that, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I, I, I started drifting like immediately, I guess. Uh, and, but then I spent all this time with a gigantic void, I think of wanting to be able to go home. And uh, I think that that probably is something that, I think that's why the setting is, is what it is. I think I was filling that void. acknowledgements reference Jackie Sturber <laughs> and I'm sure there are many reasons for acknowledging Jackie in the acknowledgements uh, but I'm wondering about one of them which is a walking uh, I'm going to use the word pilgrimage some form of a pilgrimage that you did in Nebraska and I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about why you did it but also if and how that experience shaped your sense of the characters, the place, you know, the, the arc of the plot, you know, those kind of things. The walk definitely, it definitely shaped my understanding of small towns in Nebraska and the histories of that. I did a lot of research when I was writing the book and prior to writing the book, uh, the first book I wrote, I wrote another book. It was just my dissertation. It's not really readable. It, it needs to be undissertated if anyone's ever going to read it. So at the beginning of June in 2010, Jackie and I decided to walk from Norfolk, Nebraska to Valentine, Nebraska. It's about 200 miles we walked in 13 days. Uh, my stepfather, Greg, would pick us up occasionally or, you know, he to take us to stay because we couldn't camp. I mean, we're not outdoors. We're not great athletes or anything. And we were walking, you know, our longest walk, I think, was something like 26, 23 or 26 miles in one day. Uh, so we would stay in these small towns. Plus, we felt like they needed the income uh honestly like if they had a hotel we were going to to pay to stay there anyway so yeah it, it's it's a trail called the cowboy trail it's a rails to trails project it used to be uh, a train line and back when they had passenger service as as we learned from talking to people as as we walked which i finally did toward the second half, uh, Jackie did most of the talking the first half, which was really great because I'm not great at talking. Uh, but 
when I spoke, I remember speaking to a woman and she told us about how back when there was passenger service, people would hop the train and go to the next town uh, to frequent whatever businesses they had. And then as soon as the passenger, you know, as soon as like cars came along, it just kind of destroyed the entire economy of these towns because they didn't need to hop on the train and go, you know, 10 miles, 13 miles down the tracks to a neighboring town to do things like they, there was everyone in one town would go to another town to go bowling or, you know, to go dancing or to, you know, see a film. Uh, and then once the trains were gone, that, that culture just kind of died out. Uh, and then when the highways were rerouted, and as gas mileage goes, gets better, which we're all for, right? Um, or getting off of fossil fuels or whatever. But as soon as like they got better cars, they could drive further distances, and you had um, you have bypasses uh, built that completely avoid small towns that used to go through the heart of small towns. I live in a small town where they built a bypass uh, in the last few years, and it has definitely impacted the economy of our town uh, because people don't have to go through here. They don't stop at the, you know, we had two grocery stores we're down to one um, things like that. I mean, it, it has a pretty profound effect uh, at the same time. I don't know that agri agriculture here has ever been that sustainable, but that's getting into a lot of other territory. <laughs> Is there something from that experience that comes to mind, that springs to mind that, oh, yes, that experience, that, that influenced this bit of the book or this character or the, this, this sense emotionally? Yeah, I think, well, in 1978, we're right on the edge of where the, what people refer to as the 1980s farm crisis hit. And it had really already started. I mean, it had started many times in years before i mean there'd been the there'd been farm crises multiple times here in nebraska um i think that when with the advent of the tractor and the combine and you no longer needed labor to you know do threshing by hand and things like that i think yeah i i think all of that is is definitely in the book for me i didn't want to make it primarily about that necessarily but it's it permeates it like this is a place with that's disappearing that you know is getting smaller every year uh because there aren't there just aren't jobs there's there's there aren't jobs to support people and i've worked with a lot of students uh that's probably also that probably also influenced the book i've, I've worked with a lot of students who go to college because that's just expected and they have to but they would desperately love to stay in their small town. They would love to go home. And, but they just did, they don't have the chance or the opportunity to do so. There's no job. I could really use a change of scenery. Yeah. Everybody's smoking all the greenery. Yeah. Close the matches, they were handed down to me. But I'm still fly. I'm still fly. I know. I'm still fly. I'm still fly. Let's go.
say it with your chest I'm now. Just in the little time, I guess we have left. Is is there a piece of the book, uh, a section that that you'd like to read? I can try it. <laughs> Let me find a book. Do you find it hard to read your own work? You know, I it's it's been affected by the Zoom thing. I used to not be able to sleep for two nights before I would have to do a reading, um, and then live i would take three pieces i would take three short stories with me and i would just decide on the fly like i'm gonna read this one and there would be so much adrenaline pumping through my system that i could actually deliver uh but in the era of the zoom i i it's been really tough i don't know maybe it's part of the story maybe that's it's because i hear those voices and so it's hard for me to capture those voices uh, but it also could be a product of of the pandemic i'm not quite certain yet <laughs> what the deal is uh but I've, I've had trouble reading this book i thought i could pull off pam and i stumbled uh i yeah okay uh i'm just gonna read a few pages from the beginning deep in the late july night the headlamps of harley jensen's cruiser carved a tunnel of light above highway 28 they lit the thin tar and chip road, and the bunch grass whose shoots ate its crumbling edges. The glare blotted out all else. North central Nebraska, the spot where sand met loam, rose and fell around him, cast black against the shadow of sky. Each night on patrol, Harley absently ticked off names of passing tracts, like reading a plat map in an old atlas. Convention out here held that pastures and fields were named for the living who owned them. Homes and outbuildings huddled within windbreaks, their yards lit by single lampposts, were named for the builders. The only exception was Harley's folks' place, the abandoned farmhouse he now approached and intended to speed right by. Once the windbreaks, trees cut a dark mound against the horizon, he'd pass the barn and glance to see the front door still shut. Then he'd sink the gas with the sole of his roper. The Jensen place had been built by a brush, and a brush owned it now. Before Harley was born there 47 years back, other families had lived in the silent two-story, but Jensen was the name that took, which meant that there were two systems for naming Harley supposed, industry or infamy, whichever stuck. A chrome glint flickered in the overgrown yard and tightened his neck. Someone was parked down by the barn. He passed the house and let the incline slow him to a coast. He made a left on the gravel of County Road K and stopped. Elbow propped in the window, window frame, he took a long last drag of the smoke that kept him awake and flicked a shred of tobacco from his tongue. He brushed a knuckle against a sideburn and debated whether or not to keep driving, pretend he hadn't seen anything. The legal drinking age was 19, old enough that high school kids gathered in broken down homesteads dotting the hillsides. Granted, they were generally bright enough to pick a place without highway frontage, certainly one without ties to a deputy who patrolled half the night but then Harley supposed nothing drew drunk, horny kids so much as a little seediness, some grisly bit of trivia they could spin into full-fledged lore. He wondered what they'd come up with. In his day, rumor had it, in the thick cottonwoods lining the quarry, a compound of naked cannibal albinos waited for couples to park on moonlit nights. It'd be tough to beat that. He threw the fury in reverse, punched the gas to clear the blind intersection quick, and weaved into the house's drive. The tracks were little more than two slight dips in the knee-high grass. Ahead, his low beams caught a snatch of tailgate. 
Above the wild rye and volunteer ash saplings hovered the dusty bumper of an F-250, Paul Reddick. Harley gripped the handset where it clipped to the radio. He held the button, not pressing, but resting. Protocol was to radio in when he, whenever he pulled someone over. Technically, he supposed he wasn't pulling anyone over. He let the handset go. He grabbed the flashlight from the bench seat and tensed at the pop of the door hinge he kept forgetting to WD-40. He stood in the brush and trained the beam on the pickup's back window. The old 12-gauge Winchester lay in the rack behind Paul's dirt-colored hair, which hung well past his shoulders. From the open driver's side window, a tan and vein forearm jutted like it was signaling a right-hand turn. Its fist flipped Harley the bird. Reddick, Harley acknowledged. Paul dropped the middle finger and let his arm dangle from the window. Jensen floated back just as how do you do. That how do you do-ness, that unshakable calm made Harley's teeth grit. It wasn't composure and it wasn't reserve. Harley knew a good bit about composure and reserve himself. What Paul had was the hostile indifference of a person who valued nothing, the kind of rarefied spite that came from never having known a single thing he'd mind losing. It no doubt stemmed from a brother dying 18 years back when Paul was surely too young to even remember him. In Paul's case, Harley thought not remembering was probably worse. All Paul would have known was the wake of it. Chris, that was magnificent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. My guest today has been author and teacher Chris Harding Thornton, whose first novel is Pickard County Atlas. Again, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Really. I really, really appreciate this. So it's been great getting to talk to you and getting to know you. I've heard your name for years. <laughs> Yeah. Jackie would have all of the dirt. Jackie has all of the dirt on me, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Music